Well, guys, my name is Matt Young. I'm the worship pastor at Village Church of Bartlett, the Bar- Bartlett campus. Uh, but every once in a while, I have the privilege of being able to lead here at the East Campus as well. So sometimes you'll see me playing guitar and, and singing along with you as we sing the praises to our Lord together. And then every once in a great while, I have the privilege of opening the word with you all. And this morning is, is one of those mornings. And so I am so excited to be here with you. I'm excited to continue in our Joseph series together. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, then, uh, then you've started to get a glimpse into the life of Joseph. And if you've been with us beyond that, then you know we've been in the book of Genesis for about 10 years now. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But it has been about a year and a half through Genesis. And we're looking at most of the narratives that are going through. So right now we're focusing in on Joseph and his life and the way that the story follows him. And so this morning, we are going to be picking up where we uh, left off last week in Genesis 40. Now we're in Genesis 41. Uh, But before we go into the text this morning, I just wanted to ask, uh, just kind of do a little exercise with me this morning. Um, Don't worry, it's not calisthenics or anything. You don't need to stand up and stretch out or anything like that. But just do this exercise with me. Interview yourself at 17 years old. So think about yourself when you were 17 years old, and, and in your mind, interview yourself back then, what were your dreams? Or, if you're not 17 yet, think about what your dreams will be for the future. So what were your dreams at 17? What kind of expectations did you have for your future? Where would you live? What type of career would you have? Would you get married someday? If so, did you have an idea as to who that might be? Maybe, would you have any kids? How many would you think you'd have? What about, what would, the, what would your walk with the Lord look like? In what ways would you be serving Him in your life? So as you think through those questions, asking your 17-year-old self those questions, I just want to ask, raise your hand if everything that you anticipated for your life played out exactly as you expected. Okay, good. I was hoping I wouldn't see any hands raised. Uh, the reality is I think every one of us can say we've had unmet expectations in our lives. And as you look at the life of Joseph, and as we've seen over the past few weeks, he's had unmet expectation after unmet expectation. And so we're going to look this morning at overcoming unmet expectations in our lives. So what if, now as, as we look at those, we can also see that those are our dreams and visions for our lives, but what happens if God were to give you a specific vision for your life or give you a glimpse into your future? You know, we find with Joseph, he didn't give him the entire picture, but he gave him a glimpse of what was to come. And that's what we've studied. That's why I said age 17, because when he was 17, as we find in Genesis 37, he had two dreams, both of which were prophetic dreams for things that would come to pass in the future. And the first one was um, basically about him ruling over his brothers with the sheaves, and his sheaves shot up higher than the rest, and these other sheaves all bowed down to him. And the second one was the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him, which this brought his parents into the mix. So when he brought that up to his dad, his dad rebuked him. But it's interesting because in verse 11 in 37, it says, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So the brothers, their jealousy was riled up from these dreams that Joseph was having at 17. But his dad, even though he rebuked him, he still kept that in the back of his mind that these dreams might, might, might come to pass someday. Maybe this is the Lord communicating something to my son. Well, then the very next verse, his brothers conspire against him, and ultimately they decide they're going to strip him down, throw him into a pit, and leave him there. Now, as they're kind of getting together and talking about what just took place, these Midianites come by, and they get him out of the pit, and they sell him to Ishmaelites who are passing on their way 
to the land of Egypt. And then when they get to Egypt, they sell him to an officer of Pharaoh. We all know his name as Potiphar. He's the captain of the guard. So now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. God's given you a small glimpse into the future, and, and you, you understand that there will come a day when people will bow their knees to me. I'll rule over my brothers and my parents. And now you're a slave in a foreign land. You've been forcibly taken away from, from your homeland, from your people. Not only that, abandoned by your brothers in the process, right? And now you have become property of a foreign leader. For me, it'd be easy to wonder, what's going on here? This is not what I anticipated for my life at all. But then we see that God is with Joseph and gives him favor and success even as a servant in the house of Potiphar. As a matter of fact, Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So now Joseph's a slave, but he's essentially running Potiphar's entire household and he's been entrusted with great responsibility. But you fast forward a little bit and if you can remember, as he faithfully is serving his master, his master's wife makes advances to him and wants him to lie with her. So he refuses, but in the process, she grabs his cloak. He takes, she takes that, holds on to it. He runs out of his cloak, runs out. And now she has made up a story that he came onto her and he left his cloak beside her. So she accuses him of sexual immorality towards her. She accuses him of that. Now Potiphar, who's entrusted all his property to him, is just fit with rage. He's just angered by what has taken place. So he throws him into prison. So now you've got Joseph who's in prison. So before he was a slave and you think, oh man, it can't get much worse. Well, now I've been put above some people so I have some ownership. I have, you know, uh, oversight of certain things. But now he's in prison. Not only that, but his reputation, all these people are hearing that he's, you know, committed this sexual um, inappropriate behavior, which he has not done. So his reputation's on the line. Now, I don't know, he did what was right, but he's been accused of terrible offenses. Now he's in prison in Egypt, even though he's innocent. I don't know, to me, that would feel like a bit of an unmet expectation. I have a feeling if I were Joseph and I had these dreams, this was not one of the steps that I expected to land where I was going to be. I, I could imagine myself saying something like, Lord, I did what was right, and now look at where I am. How, did, how could you let this happen? Are you sure you know what you're doing? Like, you know the vision that you gave to me, right? Now, we don't see anything in the text that indicates that that was his mentality. We don't see anything in the text that indicates that he didn't struggle in that way. In fact, we see something, as we'll, as we'll look in just a minute here, while he's in prison, he does say, he has an opportunity, right? So he's in prison. The Lord has given him favor here in the jail again. The head prison guard puts him over all the other prisoners, so now Joseph, a prisoner, is leading all the other prisoners, and this gives him the opportunity to interact with them all. And one morning in particular, he notices two men who were distraught. And these men were the chief cupbearer and the chief baker to Pharaoh himself. And what happened was they had had these dreams, and they didn't know what they meant. So ultimately what happened was they tell him the dreams that they had, and he, giving God the glory because the Lord has given him the interpretation, offers them these interpretations, and then he says this to the cupbearer, which gives us a little indication that he doesn't really want to stay in this prison for long. In Genesis 40, verses 14 through 15, he says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. 
And the interpretations came to pass just as he said they would. The cupbearer was restored. The chief baker was killed. But you see in that plea that he's given, he doesn't want to be in this prison. He's asking to be put out. I shouldn't be here. I'm innocent. So please remember me when you're restored to your position. I know this interpretation is from God, so this will happen. So remember me and mention me to Pharaoh. So now Joseph is finally thinking, I'm going to be restored. I'm going to be out of this prison. It's time. Now what the next step that the Lord has for me, I'm going to follow into. I'm going to step into. Well, here's how chapter 40 ends. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now I could imagine a world where this chief cupbearer is restored to his position and he's celebrating, right? So he loses sight of how he got there. He's just so carried away in the moment. But you'd think when there's a downtime, when there's a moment to think he'd remember, oh, right, that guy told me this was going to happen. That Hebrew in the prison, he told me this was going to happen. Well, when you jump to Genesis 41, and that's where we're picking up this morning, this is where it gives us some clarity as to whether or not that happened, whether he remembered. After two whole years, that's how this starts. So it picks up, the cupbearer did not remember him but forgot him, and now two whole years later, two whole years in prison, and sometimes when we think of prison in our society, we think of not a, I mean, I don't think any of us desire to be in prison, but I don't think it's anything compared to what these prisons were like. He called it a pit, right? It's, it's not a place that's remotely desirable. He doesn't get TV time and yard time and those kind of things. He is in a pit for two whole years after that, thinking this is my ticket out. This, this may be what the Lord has to get me out of here. Nope. But here's what the Lord does. Two whole years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So these are two dreams that he's had. And then it says in verse 8, So in the morning his spirit was troubled. His spirit was troubled is, the author here is, is trying to get us to understand that's a similar phrase that was used for the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So now you see he's in the same state of mind that those two are in. He's troubled by this dream. I don't know about you guys. I've had some weird dreams in my life, but I don't know that I've ever woken up and been like distraught over a dream. I've had some weird ones. Don't get me wrong. But to be like, oh man, what does that dream mean for my life? And questioning it to the point where you're overcome with, with just a burden to understand what it is. But in this day, as we see, God did prophesy through dreams at times. And this is another case like that. So his spirit is troubled. So he sends and calls for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So if you're not clear how troubled he was, he went all across the land of Egypt to find someone, anyone who could give him a glimpse as to what these dreams meant. There was none who could interpret it. Then at this time, Again, two years after the cupbearer was restored. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. See, we don't see until this verse that he had actually agreed with Joseph that he would 
bring him before Pharaoh. We don't see that prior to this. We just see that Joseph tells him, please remember me when you go there. But now we see it's an offense. I remember my offenses today. Verse 10. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. Verse 12. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Listen to this. This is really important. Verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Do you notice the difference there? Pharaoh is saying, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph immediately says, nah, uh uh-uh, it's not me. It's not in me. It's God who's going to give you the interpretation. He's going to give you the favorable answer. So even here we see that Joseph is continuing to give glory to God. Even after two years in the prison, he understands that the source of that gift that he has is of the Lord. The only reason he's able to interpret anything, the only reason he's able to do that, um, that great act is because God has given him that ability. So he's giving him the credit, he's giving him the glory, knowing that that gift is from God. So then Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams he had about the, the skinny cows and then the, the, blighted, um, the blighted grain and, and how they swallowed up the seven other ones. And then we see this in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. Now that's where Joseph ends the dream interpretation. But here's where we see something really interesting because all these other experiences that Joseph had, right? We talked about unmet expectations. Prior to this, he was in the prison. And prior to that, he was abandoned by his brothers, put into a pit. But each of these steps along the way, he was given opportunities to lead. He was given opportunities to grow in wisdom and understanding. So this is the end of the interpretation, but it's the beginning of the recommendation that he has for Pharaoh. So he continues, verse 33, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So how was it that Joseph came up with these recommendations? I mean, ultimately, God granted him wisdom. But as I mentioned, he learned how to lead over time. Every one of those unmet expectations, each one of them, he was given leadership, he was given ownership of an entire area. And in that time, he was able to learn leadership principles. He was able to understand how to best govern people in order to accomplish these things. So each step was another 
another opportunity for him to learn, another opportunity for him to grow. You can remember his experiences, sold into slavery, and then became the head servant in Potiphar's house. Falsely accused and imprisoned, led all the prisoners in the prison. And again, all of these events occurred after he received the dreams of what would take place in his future. These are all happening after he's already got an idea in his head of what his future is going to be. I came across a story this last week of a guy by the name of Doug Lindsay. Um, and uh, it was really interesting. When he was growing up, his mom wasn't able to pick him up or even walk past when he was the age of four. In fact, she couldn't pick him up after 18 months. There was one situation where she did when he was four years old. She picked him up because he was choking and she mustered the strength to pick him up and save his life. But other than that, she was unable to stand up. She was unable to carry her son around. She was wheelchair-bound for the remainder of his life, as was his aunt. They had a seemingly undiagnosable medical condition. Then you fast-forward as he's grown up with this all around him. When he was 21 years old, away at school, Doug collapsed. Doug Lindsay collapsed, and he had to drop out of school because he was unable to function. He was bed-bound for about 22 hours a day. Doctors could not figure out what was wrong with him. So he decided, I'm stuck in this bed for 22 hours a day. I'm going to immerse myself into medical research and try to get to the bottom of this. And after many years of doing research, he was able to fly himself to a medical research conference with scientists and medical professionals from all over the nation. But in order for him to fly there, he had to purchase three seats on the airplane so that he could lay down because he didn't even have the strength to sit up. So he's at this conference... Thankfully, he had a friend who was able to help him get around in a wheelchair. But he was representing himself there as a scientist in order to try to earn a spot to present here. And as it worked out, he was able to get a spot. He was able to present. And he presented his theories about all the research that he discovered on the illness that he thought he had and how he thought it was affiliated with this specific body part. But when he presented these things, he faced tons of adversity. I mean, these are some of the most renowned scholars in the field and they just, they didn't buy it. He's an uneducated guy who's kind of just studying for his own good, whatever that may be. But there was one specific research doctor who was out of the University of Alabama who believed that Lindsay might have been onto something. Now this also presented a problem because he had to travel down to Birmingham, Alabama, which was 500 miles where he lived, in order for the two of them to be able to work together. But he was able to make that happen by, with some friends' help, he rented an SUV. They put a mattress in the back. They drove him 500 miles down while he laid down in the mattress. And as they worked together, as they did research, Lindsay found there was a drug that was designed for a different purpose, but he believed it could be used to counteract some of the symptoms he was facing. So he convinced this doctor to write him a prescription so that he could basically be a human guinea pig. He could test it out and see if it would help. He finally did write him the prescription. He was on this for, I think they said it was about six years he was on this trip. So it wasn't a permanent solution, but it did provide a bit of an increase in energy and some more more mobility, and it showed that he was moving in the right direction. And as the years went on, he continued to research as he looked for a permanent solution to his ailment. And he actually developed a 363-page PDF to propose the first ever human adrenal medulectomy. This surgery had only been performed before in lab experiences. In order for him to even find those, he had to go way back in the recesses. They were, you know, it's not like it was in your normal textbook. He was diving deep into research. Then it took a year and a half to find a surgeon who would even consider 
performing this surgery because it's unproven and it's never been done on a human. So he finally got a surgeon who was willing to do that. Now 11 years after he drops out of college because he found himself bedridden, unable to function, he had the first procedure to remove the medulla from his adrenal gland. Here we are, years after his trial began, he found himself able to sit up for more than a few minutes at a time. He was able to walk longer distances than he'd done since he was a teenager. But it didn't solve the problem long term. There are two adrenal glands, and he had to wait another two years before he could have the other one operated on. So two years later, he had the other one operated on and experienced even greater gains. Since then, he's been able to have full function of his body. He's been able to speak at medical and scientific, scientific research conferences all over the world and at some of the most prestigious medical schools. And he also functions as a medical consultant with rare diseases to try and help people dig and get to the bottom of it. Now, Doug Lindsay could have just let this trial lead him to a place of total discouragement, living out the rest of his days, bedridden, moping around, woe is me, God, why would you do this to me? But he didn't. He allowed that trial to motivate him to find a solution. That trial drove him to a place where he said, I don't want to live my life like this, so what can I learn? Okay, here's what I'm experiencing. Let's do some research. Let's look into this. Let's look into that. He researched for 11 years. He let that trial lead him there. And this is what we find Joseph did too. He utilized the most trying circumstances to shape his growth in wisdom and as a leader. He didn't allow those, what we would have found to be incredibly discouraging situations to become the end for him. He didn't allow those to be means for him to just mope around and, and woe is me. Lord, you forgot me. He doesn't have that mentality. He uses those experiences to learn, to grow, to have more wisdom, and to develop as a leader. So let's then jump back into our text in verse 37 and look at how Pharaoh responded to Joseph's proposal. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? I love this because what was it that made Joseph stand out to Pharaoh? What was it? Spirit of God. He has the Spirit of God. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? When I mentioned the, um, the proposal earlier, you could see over and again, part of the wisdom was how he presented it. He continued to say, let Pharaoh do this, let Pharaoh do that, under the authority of Pharaoh. Those terms were used over and again. There's even wisdom in how he presented it so that Pharaoh understood, I'm not trying to come over you and tell you what you need to do or usurp your authority, but I'm giving you the rightful place where you have. That's wisdom, to even know how to address the Pharaoh over all of Egypt. So all this wisdom comes because he has the Spirit of God and others are seeing the Spirit of God in his life. They're seeing the success that the Lord has given to him, the favor that the Lord has given to him, and they understand that it's the Spirit of God. His proposal was pleasing because it was rooted in and full of divine wisdom. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph in verse 39, Since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Once again, we see 
God has shown you all this. Pharaoh's acknowledging initially when he came to him, I understand you can interpret dreams, but all along, because Joseph continues to point to God, Pharaoh's understanding, no, it's God who's accomplishing these things. Since God has shown you all this, God has revealed these things to you, you shall be over my house, Joseph. I've set you over all the land of Egypt. If that wasn't clear enough, the very next verse, verse 42, this gives us a clear picture of what Pharaoh's doing. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. All those symbols that he just did, the signet ring, clothing him in royal garments, having him ride in the second chariot and calling out, Bow the knee! All those are signs of royalty. Joseph has gone from abandoned by his brothers in a pit and all these different unmet expectations along the way and now ultimately he's being set over all of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 44, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's a big responsibility. That's a lot of oversight right there. That's You know, as a matter of fact, we've mentioned all these unmet expectations, but what about exceeded expectations? I have a feeling that when Joseph had that dream, he had no expectation that God was going to use all these other events in order to position him to be over all the land of Egypt, which was an incredible empire at this time. I'm sure he had no idea. I can't imagine in his mind that's what he thought. I mean, he's with his people when he has these dreams. Now he's removed from the Hebrews. I would think every step of the way there'd be an opportunity for discouragement. Now I'm removed from my people. Well, maybe that dream won't, won't come to pass. Maybe, I, maybe, those are just, maybe it was the pepperoni on my pizza the night before. I don't know what he would have said, but we see that this would have been an exceeding expectation. Any expectation he could have had, he couldn't have dreamt of being positioned this high over all of Egypt. And then we see in verse 46 that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you remember how old he was when he had the dream? 17. So he was 17 when he had the two dreams. And now here he is 13 years later and he's entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, being given the authority of the Pharaoh with the exception of sitting on the throne. It's pretty remarkable that that was the journey as you look back, the journey that he was on that entire time. And yet, all along, he was able to grow and learn from those experiences. So then it says that um, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And then verse 47, During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And we'll jump ahead to verse 54. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Talk about confidence. Pharaoh had all the confidence in the world in Joseph's leadership abilities, to the point where people are coming to Pharaoh, we've got no bread, what are we going to do? Don't come to me, go to Joseph, he's your guy. What he says to you, do. His decree is go to Joseph. That's what he's saying. Don't come to me, Joseph's got this. He's understanding that the wisdom that Joseph has 
is, is beyond. And you have to understand too, in the Egyptian time, they viewed the pharaohs as divine. They viewed them as gods. And here is what they would perceive as a god in their culture saying, no, go to the guy who has the spirit of God. He understood there's a divine, a divine um, inspiration, a divine covering on Joseph. He understood there was a spirit of God with him. So go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I find it interesting that when Pharaoh appointed Joseph over this, uh, it's incredible the fruitfulness that that produced for Egypt. Like the empire could expand even more because look at what happens, like I said in verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was all over the earth. So now not only is Joseph taking care of the Egyptian people by providing them the food that they need and the leadership they need to, to navigate these difficult years, but he's also including revenue. He's gaining revenue for them because he's selling these grains to all the other nations as they come, as they have need. So Pharaoh is probably thinking to himself, yep, I appointed the right guy for that job. And all the while, Joseph has to acknowledge that he's learned this through the Lord. And it's all because of God's sovereignty, God's providence, that he's been positioned in these places and that now he's learned the things that he's learned to be able to serve the people well, to lead them well. So what does this mean for us? What can we learn from these stories, particularly this story of Joseph? Well, first we can learn that God wastes no experience. Every one of these experiences that he had was not a wasted experience with God. And we can look at our lives and we can say the same thing. We might be tempted when we're in the midst of a trial to just to wonder why the Lord won't remove us. In fact, we ask God to deliver us from our trials instead of asking God how he wants to grow us through them. At least in our society, that tends to be our MO. That tends to be how we operate. We operate by saying, God, deliver me from this. This is too hard. I can't do this. Can you please remove these difficult people or these difficult circumstances from my life? Give me a new job because I'm miserable in mine. Well, what if the Lord wants to teach us something in these trials? What if the Lord is wanting to take advantage of this circumstance to increase our dependence upon him? To show us a side of his faithfulness that we never would have experienced if we never went to that valley, if we never experienced that trial. You know, it's really interesting. You can look at the church all around the world and we're often tempted to pray that the Lord will, will stop persecution wherever the church is persecuted around the world. And, and we, we pray against it here for ourselves too. Pray against persecution. But what's incredible is the vibrancy of the faith of the church when they're persecuted. Now, I'm not saying I want to go out and say, Lord, bring persecution upon me. But I do think when that persecution comes, we have an opportunity to see his faithfulness in a way that we wouldn't have seen it otherwise. And I think that's what other brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing when they're persecuted. They're leaning in to that, and it's been a purifying thing for them. I was talking to a missionary recently, and that's exactly what he said. He said, it's a purifying thing for the church because those that are under the blood of Christ unite in the persecution, and they're, they're emboldened to preach the gospel more faithfully. It's incredible that that's what's happening. But oftentimes when we face trials, when we have these experiences that we don't expect, experiences that we don't want to endure, we're just asking, Lord, deliver me. Please deliver me. 
Instead of saying, Lord, teach me through this. Grow my character through this experience. Let me lean more heavily into you and watch what you do in me and through me in this experience. So because we know that God wastes no experience, we should then invite the unmet expectations. You know, sometimes we have unmet expectations because our expectations just stink. Sometimes our expectations are rooted in self-service. They're rooted in selfish gain. And the Lord has a bigger picture and a bigger idea for our lives than what we could ever imagine. And he wants to accomplish more in us and through us than we know. And as we can see, if we allow the Lord to work in our hearts through these trials that we face, we know that he will accomplish more than we could ever imagine in us. I mean, if I were to ask a show of hands, how many of you have gone through a trial and come out on the other side closer to the Lord than you were at the beginning of that trial? I think we'd see a whole, number, a whole lot of hands pop up. I think we'd see a number of you raising hands because trials, the Lord uses them in that way. So we should invite our unmet expectations. At the very least, it will give us a perspective of God's faithfulness. It will give us a perspective that we can trust in God. And as a matter of fact, that's our last one. Even when we face unmet expectations, we should rest in God's faithfulness. See, God was with Joseph at every point of this story. Even when he was betrayed, even when he was removed from his people, when he was sold as a slave, when he was falsely accused, when he was thrown into prison. The Bible shows over and over again, in fact, it articulates it, that God was with Joseph and gave him favor, or God was with Joseph and gave him success. God was with Joseph, giving him favor and success through all of that. But the reality is that we have an even greater gift than Joseph in the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God was with Joseph, but we, if we've trusted in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us permanently and sealing us. There's a sealing that takes place so that we know, we know that we have the Holy Spirit within us and we have eternal life because of what Jesus has accomplished. We have a Holy Spirit that is constantly interceding on our behalf as we see in the Scriptures. The Bible says that we don't know how to pray how we ought, so the Spirit intercedes for us in inaudible groans. Inaudible groans. The Spirit is going to the Father in ways that we couldn't go to the Father on our behalf. What a privilege that is. And we have full assurance because of the Holy Spirit within us. He gives us a confidence in our call, knowing that we have been called, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And then we have the illumination of the truth because of the Spirit and the conviction of sin. All these things we have because the Spirit indwells us, indwells our souls, and he will guide us and direct us and lead us in all truth. So we have the ability to live out these so what's only because we have the Holy Spirit. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we can rest in the fact that God wastes no experience. We can trust in that. We can invite the unmet expectations because we know God won't waste these experiences. He won't waste our pain. He won't waste the trial. And then we can ultimately rest in the faithfulness of God even in the most difficult circumstances because we've seen his faithfulness throughout the previous trials and we know he will continue to be faithful in any trial that lies ahead. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful for the redemption that you have brought to us through Jesus. Thank you for the blood that was shed, the precious, innocent blood that was shed on our behalf, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for ours. 
And because of that, then when he ascended into heaven, he said he gave us the helper. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that gift. And thank you for the opportunity to look at the life of Joseph and see at every turn, when he has unmet expectations, you are there with him and you are using them to grow him. And I pray, Lord, that when we run into unmet expectations in our lives, when we face trials that we never expected, that we would lean into you, that we would rest in you, and that we would walk into those moments with joy, joyful expectation that you are going to accomplish a work in our heart that we would never otherwise have had take place. Lord, thank you for the blessings that we have. Thank you for redeeming us by the blood of Jesus. And we pray that as we've opened your word together, Lord, as we've looked at your faithfulness throughout the word, that we will be compelled to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the washing of your word, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.